everyone back again. Let us finish up Gida Balls, the Society of the Spectacle, starting here with Chapter 4, the proletariat as subject and as representation. Hi, I'm David. If you're new here, I mean, go check out Part 1. If you aren't new here, you know, if you haven't subscribed and liked the video, you should do it if you found it useful. Or leave a review on a podcast platform if this is where you're listening to me uh, talk at you. Uh, and, you know, comment. I like to hear from you all. I don't have the time to respond to everyone because um, there are lots of comments and stuff, but I love to hear from you. It provides at least the illusion of communication between us. But you all, um, for those of you that do leave reviews and, and comments, like you always leave great stuff. I, I always learn a lot from you. I wish I could respond to, to everyone. But I do pretty much see every single comment. So, you know, even if I don't respond, just know that I have seen what you said and I love that you um, uh, offered me some of your knowledge. Yeah, so let's let's continue on here with chapter four, the proletariat as subject and as representation. So in reflecting on the class struggle, de Ball suggests that self-conscious humans are subjects of history, while productive progression is its object. That is, and this is just such a Marxist idea that history progresses with economic forms of production and development. As economic conditions change, so too does society change, and then therefore, so too does history change. So in the class struggle, in order for it to be properly conducted, and I think that it's, because I hadn't read this text before, but a couple of weeks ago I did uh, Walter Benjamin's The Concept of History, and these texts very much go together. I They very, Benjamin and Debal, very they're very good um they're they're good bedfellows they go together really well anyway so it is within the class struggle then that there is an acknowledgement of injustice within this history because the class struggle acknowledges this history as it is pushed by production by changes in economic forms of production and so it then acknowledges that history as we know it came about through exploitation be it through uh, slavery, through serfdom, or feudalism, I should say, and then through capitalism, that depends upon economic exploitation. So this is, you know, you know, Debal uses this to uh, stage a conflict, stage a debate between Marx and Hegel, and this is something I think that I've recounted a few times, but for Debal, the issue with Hegel is that it's much too abstract, and this is what Marx says as well. Marx refers to Hegel's philosophy as Hegelian junk. It is essentially just armchair philosophy, not actually concerned with the actual plight of human beings. So within Hegel, world history, history, spirit, is really his aim, which is quite abstract, where he's just interested in transformations, qua transformations in themselves through what is, you know, what is said of Hegel, dialectical movement, which is not something that we really we find also that neatly in Hegel, but in any case, the idea there is that history moves via certain conflicts, contradictions, uh, issues that pushes history forward, which is very abstract. Now, Marx comes along to say that, well, we can actually point to real live forms of resistance through worker struggles, through class struggles that have pushed history and that's what Marx does. He gives so many different examples and really, you know, says we don't need to like 
delve into this abstract territory of philosophical introspection of like our own place within the history of 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 world spirit we can actually look at real historical material events that pushed history so as the progression would go for marx that Deval identifies is that this history would culminate into scientific socialism and scientific socialism would come about through uh, the knowledge and wealth that would be accrued through capitalism and then people would become aware of capitalism's contradictions its fundamental contradictions and it would then force uh, a sea change it would force society and the world to adopt a new kind of economic system that he would call scientific socialism that comes about through capitalism. Capitalism is necessary for Marx. And so, however, De Ball is cautious about this emphasis on science because he identifies that science can very much be used to uphold bourgeois interests. And capitalist interest as well it can be used to expand already existing power instead of revolutionary power so this is why the ball has an issue with utopian socialists at the time or not even not at the time well yes at the time but before the ball as well who ignore real struggles and put all their money on science essentially to end oppression they say that oh well as soon as science advances far enough, then we won't need to work anymore. As soon as we become so good with technology that we can have all our basic needs met through machines, then we don't need to work anymore. Now, the ball is not buying any of that. And that is because science and technology on their own will not oppose the current uh, unequal system or unequal system that we live within. In fact, if they are not accompanied by a change in consciousness about this system itself, then they will only uphold and maintain that system. So, you know, as a really a present example, if we think about the writer's strike in the United States and elsewhere, if we think about the writer's strike, what I see, much of what I see about it is really a concern about AI, how AI is going to replace writers, which, which, is obviously, I'm not trying to say this isn't a concern here. Of course, there is a concern there. However, this distracts from what I think is a more fundamental issue, and that is the nature of exploitative, of this exploitative industry in itself, where the issue is not AI. The issue is that these corporations are always seeking to cut costs, always seeking to underpay their employees in order to make the most money which is at the core of this issue. And so AI is only a symptom, at least AI replacing writers in this case, is only a symptom of a broader issue. Now, Debal is like, of course, he's indebted to Marx, but he's also prepared to critique Marx, where he even thinks that within Marx, there's too much abstraction. There's too much of a removal from actual revolts that had occurred to oppose, uh, to oppose capitalist exploitation. Now, if you read Marx, you know that there are so many instances where he describes workers' revolts, peasant revolts, and everything against, um, against capitalist or feudalist overlords. But in reducing history to a class struggle, the Bull suggests that Marx erases the many different economic situations and developments that had occurred, not to mention 
other economic systems that existed all throughout the world and that can't be reduced to the somewhat linear sequence that Marx describes to human history as being tethered to really European forms of economic development. Uh, so Marx will just like begrudgingly look at um, Asian markets or Asian types of production and just like brand them this type of despotism and say that they are just, you know, infant, they're in their infancy in human history, which of course Marx is reflecting European uh, ideals here. And he's just very much trying to, he's trying to uphold European values. And we see this kind of, uh, this kind of racism echoed as well in like uh, thinkers like Zizek, who's like, you know, Zizek, who's like, yeah, India needed to be colonized in order for it to embrace capitalism and to be freed from tradition, uh, from its traditions, which of course is extremely messed up. Uh, but Debois identifies this in Marx, and he also suggests that Marx erases the fact that the bourgeois are a revolutionary class, just not revolutionary in the way that Marx would like, in the type of revolution that Marx wants to bring about. But the ball here is identifying that we cannot undermine the power and force of bourgeois movement and how really it opposed old systems as well. And so we have to be careful in just celebrating revolution for the sake of revolution because they have revolutions have been used, you know, historically to maintain a, st a status quo, to concentrate power in the hands of a few. So in a sense, the bourgeois revolution might be the last one to come from technical transformations and violence or like scientific developments alone. Proletarian revolution demands also a change in consciousness, as I said earlier. That is, we can't just rely on technology or science to just do the work in itself. So how much of theory is actually a way to erase specific instances of revolt? Do all workers experience the same exploitation? Are there degrees of exploitation? I mean, these are questions that I'm concerned with and that I think uh, kind of run under the current of Debal's argument, especially when he considers the ways in which workers' movements, as they are taken up by certain figures at the, as leaderheads, come to homogenize the experiences of workers in their becoming a spectacle. So, for example, the Soviets, or the Soviet Union, Soviet ideology, didn't emerge from theory, but from a response to specific circumstances. So the Soviet then became, in Debal's words, the highest theoretical truth of the International Working Men's Association, which, of course, we have to ask who's actually being represented in such a movement. And so we see then, of course, there are big differences among Marxists, socialists, communists, like so many different camps here. Uh, and there's, it doesn't to say that that's bad. I mean, it's good that there are these disagreements and these conflicts. In fact, I think that's what keeps the um, kind of the theoretical movement certainly alive in that it keeps these groups capable of actually defending their, their points and not just submitting to doctrine or dogma so they know exactly what needs to get done and how how it needs to get done. So does this come about though by viewing the other through a homogenous lens, thereby ignoring specificities? So, you know, by a, like a, a counterpoint for those who see anarchism and anarchists as not falling under the rubric of communist movements, depends who you read to some extent, 
does this, or I should say, anarchists are no better in that they submit to the illusion of individualism, much like communists or whatnot might submit to the illusion of the worker as just some homogenous group. So anarchists are no better in that they submit to the illusion of individuals or the illusion of individualism, or in the case of communism, the dream of a communist utopia that just applies to all, uh, without having or wanting to really put in the work. They can't reckon with different needs people have, their varying histories and whatnot, and the atomism essentially makes them very susceptible to manipulation. Debal is essentially dissatisfied with historical Marxist revolutionary movements for failing to change much, really, or only doing so by increasing the state's bureaucratic powers. So Debal goes so far as to say that these struggles, Bolshevism in Russia, for example, participated in the creation of modern spectacle by inaugurating the representation of the working class. So Lenin was, in his words, the most consistent defender of the concentration of dictatorial power in the hands of the supreme representatives of ideology, which is, uh, that will certainly rub some people the wrong way, but I think that he's got a point. Whereas Stalin, or Stalin as well, terrorized the workers and peasantry with his bureaucratic state. In a sense, by liquidating the bourgeois, Stalin realized capital's dream, in his words, uh, that is to give it autonomous control over the commodity economy. So the issue, just repeated again and again and again here, is of representation, where real people, real struggles, are papered over, are displaced from those real people and real struggles, onto someone else who stands in for those real people and real struggles. So bureaucracy always tries to hide its existence. It tries to normalize itself to such an extent that it can't be criticized, it can't be identified. As it And this really goes as it intensifies. So it is capitalism's prefer, preferred form of administrative control because it isn't centralized. It tries to spread itself out throughout the entire social body, something that we come to see certainly in Foucault's work, work of others uh, in that same vein, who are very cautious and very critical of the ways in which we come to internalize certain ways of thinking and then by virtue of that normalize those ways of thinking and existing in the world. So each bureaucrat knows themselves to be part of a group but they must hide this fact to maintain their control over the workers and he's really pointing at Stalin here. So fascism also participate this isn't like this isn't reserved for communism fascism participated in creating the spectacle and it's erasure uh, of history and its simple reduction of complicated phenomena like anything into just a matter of race, blood, the leader, the nation, which are in themselves like they are all part of the same problem. So he's identifying here between communism, capitalism, fascism, he's identifying this common insistence upon homogenizing issues and then containing those issues into image-like representations so that they can be better controlled, so that they can benefit the few at the expense of the many. So for De Ball, a proper proletarian consciousness would oppose unions, 
parties and state power that stand in for the workers' struggle as representation. So the working class must realize that it is opposed to all congealed externalization and all specialization of power, which, you know, we have to ask to what extent is this actually useful, though, I think, in that how can you actually mount any kind of effective resistance to oppression if any effort to organize is just going to, you know, can just be uh, written off as submitting to the spectacle. So Debal celebrates instead workers' councils and their challenge to class society because workers' council councils allow the proletarian movement to be its own product, to actually do its own work and to respond to its own needs. So this isn't totally schematized in this text, but what he's advocating for, at least what it reads like to me, is something akin to what Fanon calls for in The Wretched of the Earth to fight against colonialism, in that it is about almost individual struggle against the system in uh, specific zones. So you, what you'll have is immediate people in like certain communities who are affected in a, in a very specific way, fighting against the system that is oppressing them in their way. And so there isn't one homogenous solution, one panacea, panacea, whatever, cure-all for the problem. Instead, it's about lots of little solutions emerging, responding to immediate needs and uh, experiences. So councils are the working class, and so they oppose the spectacle's effort to represent the working class. So a proper revolutionary movement unites theory and practice without taking on a separate representational identity. And that'll put us here into chapter 5, titled Time and History. So of course, history has always existed, to some extent, but our version of history is very much a human phenomenon. That is the way we've created it. And we reduce history to historical time to contemplate our linear progression or to make sense of our movement through history as a species. Of course, this really just translates into European history in, 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 in this context, which is obviously problematic. I mean, when history books are written, they aren't telling about indigenous histories, the varying histories of the many different indigen indigenous nations all across North America, for example. But in any case, so here, Duval presents how different societies have different relationships to time. Nomadic hunters and gatherers from thousands of years ago and early sedentary people, they lived under what he calls cyclical time because they just kept, uh, kept experiencing the same thing in the present. Again, Benjamin, if you're very curious, like a few weeks ago, I released an episode on Benjamin's The Concept of History. All of, a lot of this is, um, really resonates with that. So they lived under cyclical time in that they just lived in a perpetual present. With production and the accumulation of wealth, however, and resources, society, or at least those who are the best off, they were opened up to a new form of time, an irreversible time that was linear, where suddenly time was moving through space. It wasn't just a, like living in the, the same day over and over again in your immediate community. Suddenly you could look forward and plan things wasn't just about sustaining yourself. So this is the point where wealth is used for sumptuous feasts, adventure, and war. When the masters of cyclical society travel through their personal histories. 
in the earliest places, uh, like all, you know, in the earliest instances, uh, repetition and kinship were humans' ways to maintain their humanity. That is, they used uh, kinship ritual and everything to make themselves feel human. Now, with the advancement of labor and production comes not the dissolution of cyclical time per se, but rather its reappropriation as an event-oriented succession of powers. Now, I think there's a few ways to understand this. I mean, for even at the level of workers getting away from powers, people who've accumulated capital, uh, for workers, like, living under this system is certainly a repetition of the same. It feels feels very much like an endless cycle, not like looking to the future, but just an endless repetition of the same. Now, think as well, like historically, of the significance we place on writing here. If a society didn't write, we don't enter it into our history books, historically, because you know we don't have records. But this isn't to say that there was anything wrong with them. Like we place a lot of emphasis on writing and societies that have written because those are the ones who we've added to our history books and that we always refer back to. And what this does is it gives us a very narrow conception about what humans are capable of societally within history, where we reduce, we focus specifically on those ones that uh, wrote things down. And so we are beholden to writing and we repeat the same cycle of writing instead of imagining alternatives. So this is essentially to critique our obsession with tracing history, repeating history, which in a sense repeats very much the same over and over and over again, but under the illusion of linear progression, moving through time in, in history. So we can look back and say, look, we've come this far, we have these records from these old times, but all that this actually confirms for us is that we have submitted to this medium like writing and it's become dominant for us. And writing is a kind of simulation. It's a representation in itself that removes us from engagement with one another. So ruling over history as a big spectacle is to rule over society. So new religions at the time resonated with irreversible time in their identifying an, origi an origin point, a sequence, and a judgment day where, you know, you might have existed in cyclical time to some extent, but if you were religious, like in the Christian tradition, judgment day was coming. That was something to look forward to. So conflict between cyclical and irreversible time mirrored in conflict between myth and history, where myth often being uh, passed down orally through the oral tradition and history being something that was written, enshrined in text. So with capitalism and, bour and bourgeois society and its logics, we see perhaps the liberation of historical time from cyclical time. At least that's the promise, you know, and, and historical time and writing are imbued with a certain quality, but, you know, we have to ask how much of, of, of liberation is really possible here. So history is now no longer reserved for the ruling classes trying to wrestle with their own histories, but is taken up by everybody at least under globalized capitalism, which I think that he's he's making a big leap here in that there are still so many societies that pass down their histories orally. They don't submit to writing or historical time in this European-centered way, but in any case, historical time under capitalism is also a time tuned to the time of things 
given in abundance and given their abundance. So in this, though, is revealed the worker's attachment to time as the engine that pushes time forward in production. So can there be a reclamation of this time by workers then? I mean, this is a question I'd pose to you. Like, do you think that this time can be used for people's liberation or are we, are we always already going to be doomed given that this time is so neatly tied up with bourgeois logics, with logics of the oppressor and the writers of history? Now that puts us here into spectacular time, or chapter six, spectacular time. So commodity time homogenizes time into equal intervals between objects, where humans are now seen as means to an end, not as an end in themselves. So even outside of work, people are confronted with the ghost of cyclical time, but it is illusory. In his words, pseudo-cyclical time leans on the natural remains of cyclical time and also uses it to compose new homolo homologous, always a word I've struggled with, homologous combinations. That is day and night, work and weekly rest, recurring vacations, etc. Like an endless cycle of the same. So in work, outside of work, we are saturated in images and pseudo enjoyment in this world, all while trying to save as much time as possible. So the spectacle here is the false consciousness of time. A revolutionary reclamation of time withers away at the social measure of time in favor of a playful model of irreversible time of individuals, groups, a model in which independent federated times are simultaneously present. So here he's revealing his emphasis upon irreversible time, how it can be redeemed as a playful model, which is just like whether or not that's possible, leave it up to you, but it does seem a little bit uh, optimistic. In any case, it's a, it's a good point, or it's interesting. That brings us here into chapter 7, the organization of territory. So capitalism globalizes, obviously. It always seeks to look for new markets, new people to exploit, new people to sell to, etc. So capitalism globalizes and homogenizes its space. This is the banalization, banalization of space. Banal, like banal. The, this is banalization of space. It eliminates geographical distance in favor of spectacular separation, where the separation is really an illusion because we are all united under the same system. So space here is used to isolate people, which is true of the suburbs or cities where people retreat into their own individual atomized, divide, like separated space, and they rely upon methods of communication through new technologies to actually keep in contact with one another instead of actually being around each other. Now, it makes it harder in these cases for people to actually mount any revolutionary struggle because they don't actually come together to understand the conditions of their specific local issues. They will connect with people all across the globe around spectacular or... Um, thinly veiled internet-based issues instead of those that actually deal with their immediate communities. At least, you know, I'm reading to some extent into DeBell's work. This comes way before the internet, but I think this is what how he interpret the internet today. So a revolutionary idea here would be to reconstruct the entire environment in accordance with the needs of the power of the workers' council of the anti-statist dictatorship of enforceable dialogue. 
which is not something I certainly love. The anti-status dictatorship sounds like a horrible time of an of enforceable dialogue, of course, as the cherry on top. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I th- I think that there's something incredibly ironic in this, like this disdain for Lenin and Stalin on the basis of their representing people, but then being totally okay with the workers' council that will set up a dictatorship. It's like okay, I was on board when it was just like local struggles, people responding to their local needs. But when it's like clearly then going to become a much broader enterprise, it has to, anyways, you know, you know what I'm saying. So that puts us here into chapter eight, negation and consumption within culture. So culture is complex and because it strives to be accepted by all, but is by nature separate and individualized, uh, or it is by nature separate and individualized to specific communities so everyone you know there's cultures everywhere but of course it's different people have different cultures and stuff so in his words in the search for unity culture as a separate sphere is obliged to negate itself culture is something that must be embraced by all yet people oppose one another on the basis of culture so here this is kind of like a hegelian thing he's doing here negation of the negation so its negation can happen in response to one of two possibilities. The negation of culture can happen one of two ways. To embrace total history, that is a revolutionary one, or live as a, essentially a zombie in the spectacle. So there's two kinds of cultures here, right? The, the total history one, uh, revolutionary, uh, proletariat, total history, or essentially the spectacular one of mundane proletarian life. So all of this applies to art more specifically uh, as a way to communicate communal identity. So in our spectacle or spectacular age, art is a means to create artificial communities in muse- like in, in the form of museum goers or rich people who peruse art galleries, embrace uh, haute culture, they convince themselves that they're living the high life. And this is essentially a restructuring without community. This is just art for the sake of bourgeois culture. Now, culture always tries to seek to, as far as it represents bourgeois values, it tries to normalize this dynamic. Intellectuals as well try to normalize it as a genuine or as a general science of false consciousness, that our relationship with art, our relationship with culture, uh, and try to make it seem as though this is the only way to have a relationship with art and culture. So these efforts work to hide the negatives and contradictions of our material world uh, and and in order to make it seem as though there's nothing wrong with this world as it is represented and replayed in the art world or in the spectacle. And sociology, he says, does this quite well. So here opposing the spectacle has to go beyond critique to put practical force into action. It is dialectical in that it doesn't shy away or hide what is negative in it which i don't know if that's actually what dialectical means i guess if you just use the term and you say that's what it means i guess i can't say anything but it would i don't know if that's exactly what we how we should interpret it but in any case that's what he says chapter nine ideology materialized so ideologies have ended for double this is kind of like what fukuyama would come to say the end of um the end of history Liberal uh, democracy and global capitalism is one. That's the end of things. So the spectacle for Debal has become our one ideology. 
but in being universal, it is no longer an ideology. It's just all-encompassing, which, you know, this is also one of those things where it's like, okay, is it all-encompassing? I mean, lots of people don't. Anyways, whatever. Uh, the spectacle arrests movement because it stands in for movement itself. So the spectacle is unidirectional and so inhibits self-consciousness. It just makes us always consume the same and we are stuck in a state of non-movement as a result. So this workers' council that he celebrates, comprised of those in tune with universal history, is our only hope against the spectacle and the means of production that the spectacle rests upon. And that's that. I mean, let me know what you think. I would really love to hear if anyone has any opinions about it. Um, I think I made my my opinions fairly clear but in any case there's a lot to dig into here like the obviously offered a lot uh in this text and i think that it was a very good precursor to what we would see with uh baudillard's work and others and uh yeah let me know what you think if there's anything i got wrong or excluded i'd love to hear about it and on that note or if you like what i did like share subscribe and then on that note take care